All right, so it's been a couple weeks, obviously. Um, thanks, for, I know y'all understand about last week, uh, but I hate to miss because uh, we're getting through a lot of stuff and it's uh, hopefully exciting and interesting to you. So last time, we talked about this idea of, uh, well, as it says at the top of your handouts, the restoration of all things, or the new heavens and the new earth, right? We'll see different ways it's discussed in Scripture, but how this is the big picture, right? The Scripture really speaks of the renewal of heaven and earth as kind of a companion to the resurrection, right? We start with resurrection, what God does with us, with our bodies, that God doesn't abandon them, but God transforms them uh, because God created them good in the first place, and so God doesn't want to give up on how God made us, even though they're subject to all sorts of things. So the resurrection is how God fixes that issue, I guess you could say. And so this idea, it's the same sort of sort of thing that God is doing, but it's bigger than just us, right? So all creation is restored. It's not The story is not just about us, human beings. And so as we see, the, the big story in Scripture is not so much focused on us going to heaven, it's about heaven coming here. Right? And we will talk later about you know, well, what happens after you die, before the resurrection, and see what we can figure out there. Um, I'm not saying we don't have that hope, but, but the big picture is about, as we saw in Revelation, uh, heaven coming to earth, God making a home here and, and recreating things. You know, one of the things that I said at the beginning, and uh, so a big theme of this, this class, is that what we say about the end is what we say about God. Right? How we think God is going to bring everything to a conclusion says what we think God is like. Right? And, and there is a big difference in you know, different stories of the end and the kind of God that would bring about that end. Right? So does God destroy everything except for a few souls or restore everything? Right? Those are very different pictures of God. And I think Scripture more consistently shows this restorative picture. And that's a, frankly, I think that's a better picture of God. Right? That God doesn't abandon things that God made just because they're not working anymore because it'd be difficult. But God and His infinite power and wisdom is able to make them right. And so that's what I'm arguing with these uh, passages that we're looking at. Right? Now, uh, when you talk about, you know, I just said God's not going to destroy the earth. Well, it seems like there's some places that seem to say that in Scripture. So we're going to look at one of those passages and see how it actually is consistent with this picture that, that I'm presenting here. So we're going to be first in 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, I'll start in verse 8 just to get a little more, more context. 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 8. <clears throat> but do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient, patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed." Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved and the elements will melt with fire? But, in accordance with His promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth, where righteousness is at home. 
Uh, I saw a little comic strip years ago. Was, uh, I think it's called BC. It's like Little Cavemen. I don't know how that's relevant to <laughs> what the comic is about. Uh, but one of them is reading in the Bible, which, again, I don't know how they'd have the Bible in caveman times. Anyway, I'm overthinking this. So he's looking at this in the Bible and says, oh, my goodness, it says here that the earth is going to be destroyed. And then someone else comes along and says, well, do the meek know this? Right? Uh, referencing Jesus' beatitude, the meek shall inherit the earth. So to say, like, well, you get it, but it ain't going to last long. Sorry, meek. Uh, you get shortchanged again. Should have been tougher. All right, and uh, the reference for that thing about the earth being destroyed is here from Second Peter, particularly verse 10. So that's where we're going to focus for a little bit. Now, if you look on the back of your handout, you'll see that there are very different translations of, of this verse, particularly the very last word, which I've italicized for you there. All right, so as you look through that, some will say something like, the works on the earth will be exposed, uh, they'll be King James Version, the classic, has burned up. Uh, others have lay, burned up or laid bare, found to de de deserve judgment, uh, disclosed or burned up, right? Now, those are very different ideas to, for something to be disclosed or found out somehow or burned up. And, you know, the Bible is written in Greek and it's translated and, and as we know, even in English, the same word can have two different meanings. That's actually not what's going on here. This is actually a difference in the manuscripts. They're completely different words in different manuscripts of this, this passage, this verse. And so, uh, as unexciting as it may be to you, we're going to talk a minute about what is known as textual criticism. Right? This is the art and science, uh, the study of manuscripts and how we determine what they actually say, uh, what was original. Right? And this may not be something that you ever thought about I, for a long time I didn't think about it but we do not have the original manuscripts the original copies that Peter or Mark or Paul wrote right they're not like sitting in the Vatican somewhere in a vault uh, what we have are lots and lots of copies right and, and it's the same for every other ancient book right Homer or you know any of these these old guys uh, and we actually have a lot more of Scripture than we do of any other ancient book, right? And so, and these were copies made by hand, right? Until you get the printing press in the 1600s, uh, every copy of Scripture had to be written out by hand by a scribe or a monk, right? And as you probably know, if you're trying to copy something by hand, uh, sometimes mistakes happen, right? Um, they're usually not intentional, but uh, it's it's just a human error, right? Even if you're typing something, we make mistakes pretty easily. And um, now, 95% of the time, I would say I just made up that number. But most of the time, uh, it's not too hard to figure out what what was original, right? And a lot of these mistakes are just minor. They're spelling errors, right? We don't know how to pronounce a lot of these Bible names or places, and so it's not surprising they would mess up the spelling of them, too, as they're transcribing this and copying it. And so, right, if you have three copies that have it one way and then have one that says it another, and that one seems kind of weird, it spells it wrong, well, then we kind of know, right? Process of elimination. And now, over time, uh, archaeologists, historians have discovered more manuscripts, right? One of the most famous discoveries was the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
believe in the 40s, right? This found all these manuscripts that were uh, even more ancient than what we'd had by, by centuries um, that they didn't have before that, right? And so what that means is that older translations weren't working with the best manuscripts, right? It's nothing, not their fault. It's not a reason to be mad at them. They just didn't have access to it. And that includes like the King James Version, right? Um, that meant 400 years ago, they just didn't have all these manuscripts that we have now. And so, uh, we want to try and rely on the best manuscripts. And again, I could say a lot more about all this. There are rules that, that textual critics, scholars go by to figure out what, what makes something better. Uh, for one thing, you usually want to take the harder reading. Uh, if it makes less sense, it might be uh, right, because you can see a scribe might correct something, right? The grammar's off a little bit. If it makes sense, they would correct it, so uh, it actually might not be the right, right reading. Uh, and again, like I said, older manuscripts closer to the time of writing are generally preferred. Uh, manuscripts kind of go in families of where they're from, and in some places, right, if they're further away from where they would have been originally written, those probably aren't as good. And so based on all that, there are ways of determining how, how reliable a certain reading is versus another. Now, I say all that and say that I think the Bible is still trustworthy, right? Like I said, the there are more copies of it than we have of any other ancient book. Um, there are occasional times where it's a little unclear, but it's never going to be something like uh, an essential doctrine doesn't depend on any one particular verse or reading, right? Um, right? It just shows that the process of the transmission of God's Word to us uh, involves humans, like everything else God does. Right? God wants to involve us in that. God involved people in the writing of Scripture, and so it's not surprising that God involved people in the transmission of it, right? Okay, any questions about that? Real quick, like I said, and that was probably more information than you needed. And again, it's it's an art and a science, right? Uh, because there could be a chance that there was a mistake, and that one gets copied a bunch, right? And so that's where you, these these people who do this can kind of trace the history a little bit. And if you know where it comes from, that you can work backwards up the line. So... I bring all that up to say that Second uh, Peter 3.10 is one of these cases where some manuscripts have a word, you can see the, the Greek words there, uh, that are different, right? And it seems like most scholars today would say that the better reading is the word that means revealed or disclosed or found uh, is better than the word that means burned up. Right? I won't even try and read those Greek words because they're very long. And so, uh, on this sheet, I, I thought about trying to go through and date all of these translations, but newer ones generally will go with the found instead of burned up. We'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, that's, that's a separate thing, but that's, that is an interesting question. What is that talking about? We'll get there. So, what does it mean that creation will be disclosed or found out, right? Uh, that's what we're going to see here, that this is part of the renewal process of how God renews creation. And that doesn't mean that there's not, there is this picture of, of fire at judgment, right? That judgment and fire uh, are common images that go together. But here's the idea that this fire is, is purifying rather than destroying, right? And we, that makes sense if you look at another image that, or, or story that Peter uses in verses five and six, right? Because he talks about, the flood story. And in Genesis, when God flooded the earth, what did that do to the earth? Did it destroy it? 
No, right? It destroyed things on it, but the earth itself um, was renewed by this, right? By this catastrophic event. And so that's how we should think about this fire that's referred to here in Second Peter. It's this fire of judgment that's going to be revealing. Uh, it reveals everything to God. Um, one way of thinking about it is uh, we actually just drove through one of these yesterday, uh, the other day coming back, is like when a farmer burns off their field, right? That I remember the first time I saw that as a kid, I'm like, Mom, we need to call someone, you know, the field's on fire. He's like, no, it's okay, it's on purpose. I'm like, what? Uh, <laughs> that, that made things worse to hear that. Yeah, it's, it's to burn off the dead thing so that new growth can come, right? Or it's like a, a fever, right? The fever is actually your body responding to an infection to try and kill that off. It's, it's not pleasant. Yeah, or, yeah, melting down metal in order to purify it, to, to bring the things out of it, right? And, and that image is, is common in Scripture. In fact, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 7, right, he talks about being tested by fire. So, and he uses the same word for to being found, right? That we're found to have stronger character there. I can't remember the exact reference. Um, right, and so this is what God is doing here. The, it's a process that's meant to reveal what has happened, right? Judgment is about showing, laying bare, uh, how things are. And so that's what God is, is doing here. It's not destroying the earth, it's purifying it and showing God um, what it's made of. All right, now, it does mention the elements, as, as you pointed out. And um, this is, it says, those will be dissolved with fire, there in that same verse. So what is he talking about with these elements? Now, this is one of those places where we have to remember that this book was not written by, you know, modern scientific Americans. Because when we hear elements, what do we think of? Earth and fire, like the, the periodic table of elements, right? Yeah, right. They didn't have the periodic table back in back in their day. Um, so it's obviously it's something other than the earth, right? Because the earth is going to be disclosed or laid bare by this fire. Uh, which again, even that, whether that's literal or metaphorical, that's another discussion too. But the elements will be dissolved by it. Now, if you look at other places where this word is used, uh, stoicheia, it can refer more to this idea of, of other powers, right? Usually in a bad sense, powers that are against God, uh, other sort of heavenly bodies. Uh, an example of this is in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, where he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits, that's that same word, stoicheia, the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Right there, it's, it's clear that's a negative thing, and it's, it's these elementary teachings, right, teachings that go against the way of Christ, some sort of false teaching. And so, if, if it's the same idea here in Second Peter, then you can see that that's, that's a negative thing that we don't want to be around, right? It's something that's contrary to the way of God, and so, that needs to go. Instead, we look forward to the new heavens and a new earth. And that's that phrase we looked at last, last time in Revelation. It goes back to Isaiah 65, and so it's picked up here in Second Peter as well, where he says righteousness is at home. Right? And, and righteousness is really just the idea of wh where things are done right, right? where there's justice. Right? Justice or righteousness is kind of the same idea. right? Because this world is very often not just, and things are not right. And so what God is doing here with the new heavens and the new earth is making things right. And part of that 
is exposing the things that are wrong. Right? And so you see that this is where the judgment idea comes in. These things that, that are hidden, everything is brought to light. And so um, his point here is that we need to look forward to this, but also to live towards this. Right? Waiting for and hastening the day, the coming of the day of God. Now, I don't know how we make it come faster, but I think the, the idea is that, that we are working and building towards this world that we're hoping for. Right? Um, but again, it's, it's, it's making it new. It's not just replacing it or waiting for God to fix everything, but if we know that it's going to be this way, let's live towards that. Um, but again, what happens to us happens to creation. Resurrection into perfected spiritual bodies is mirrored with a new heavens and a new earth, a, new, a heavenly earth, whatever, whatever that is going to look like. Right. Yeah, that's, and that's a good way to think about that, right? We saw that in, in with 1 Corinthians where, it talk, where Paul's talking about our bodies, right? That it's the same because you're still you and you're not losing this essential part of you, and yet it is different, right? So that continuity and discontinuity, right? So yeah, fire, it changes it, right? The idea is not that... Jesus is going to come back, and then we're just going to live on the earth like this, but in slightly better bodies. Right? No, it's, it's going to be different, but we're not losing something that God made. Yeah, dissolved, right? What, is, what does that mean? Right? Again, if, if I'm taking the, the stance that these elements that he's referring to are a negative thing, they're not just going to be changed, right? If, if we're talking about... Uh, greed and corruption and lust and all those sort of things, uh, those have got to go. Right? They aren't going to be a part of a, a world where righteousness is a home, where there's justice. Yeah, I, th I think that's more the, the direction we should think about that. Right? Um, but I don't know, right? It, it, the, English, the English standard says heavenly bodies. Okay, yeah. Right? So I don't, I don't know. I mean, they're thinking about the stars and, and these sort of things. But in the ancient world, stars and other planets were often associated with other uh, powers, right? The, and so the, there's that kind of, since it's such a different worldview, it's hard to understand. The main thing is I don't want us to import our idea of the elements into a, their, their time, because right? they didn't think the same way. All right. Well, let's go to Romans chapter 8. Talk about the redemption of creation. Romans 8, one of the uh, best passages in the Bible, probably. Okay, Let's see. so we're not going to read all of this. There's, there's obviously a lot in Romans 8 we could talk about. Uh, he's kind of bringing to a conclusion a lot of his arguments so far in the letter. It all comes towards this chapter. And he's talked a lot about the Spirit and how we live as, as with our minds on the things of the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit, not the flesh. Right? Again, flesh being not physical bodies, but flesh being that, that selfishness that uh, we all struggle to, to resist. And so and he's talked about resurrection, but then he's going to get into, again, the, the bigger scope of this. Right? And actually, before we read this, I mean, what do you think? What problem does Jesus' death and resurrection deal with? What are some of the ways that sin? Okay, that's, is that a, you want to say a little more? I mean, you're not wrong. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's in Hebrews. The, the the slavery of the fear of death is yeah. That's it's the fear of death. Uh, scripture says is at the root of all other sin, right? Because we're afraid that we don't have time 
to trust God or do things God's way, and so we chase these things and end up killing us even more. Right? And so, yeah, his death, yeah, and that, that's also in 1 Corinthians, right? The defeat of death. Uh, in some sense, that's already happened because of the, the death and resurrection, and we're also waiting for it. Yeah. Defeat of death, uh, dealing with sin. I think usually we would say, it's, well, it's for us, right? It's, it's because of our sin, uh, and so we're saved from it, right? From our sins and the effects of our sins on us, us being human beings. Uh, and that's not wrong, uh, but the scope, as we're going to see, of, of the death and resurrection is bigger than just covering our sins so we, our souls can go to heaven. Because right? again, I think that's often the story that's told. So let's look at this. Uh, Romans 8, I'm going to start in verse 18. I consider that the, pre- the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the one of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies." For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what is seen? If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. All right, so as I mentioned, he's already talked about resurrection. Verse 11 especially says, The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit that dwells in you. All right, so this idea that uh, the Spirit of God brought Jesus to life and that Spirit's in you, so the implication is, then you don't have to worry about death either. You're also going to be raised. All right, so the Spirit and resurrection, these are all the themes here. And this idea of being God's children, right, the spirit of adoption. And so we're seeing the, the, the bigger picture of what this adoption, what us fully being God's children when we're raised, when we're filled with the Spirit, is going to look like. And so here in this section, Paul is talking about how creation itself is waiting for the resurrection. All right, that's the, the revealing of the children of God. I, I think that's what that's pointing to. When we're revealed to be who God meant, made for us to be. When we're, when we are finally who we're meant to be, creation can be what it's meant to be once again. All right, and because he says right now, creation is subjected to futility and, and, and bondage to decay. All right, when you, when you hear those phrases, right, that somehow creation is subjected to decay and, and, and all that sort of thing. What what do you think of? Where do we see evidence of this? Okay, right? Climate seems to be changing. That's a, that's a pretty big issue. What else? I mean, creation is good, but you see things about it that seem like they're not how they should be. Tornado in Nashville the other day that, that came out of nowhere and killed people. Right? Viruses, uh, coronavirus, all the others that are constantly going around, right? Just sickness, cancer, all these things. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's what he's saying, right? Creation didn't sin. Uh, it's been subjected to this futility, right? That's verse 20. I think what Paul's referring there to is, is humanity, right? We're the ones who, who did that. Uh, some would read that as, as God doing that somehow, but I don't think that makes as much sense. Yeah, somehow... 
somehow creation is broken because of sin, right? Sin is bigger, like you said, than just me and my uh, individual choices and whether my soul is going to heaven or hell, right? That's, again, the way that we tend to think about sin, but Paul seems to have a bigger vision of it and, and what it does. Um, and it's not just about where it, it sends us. So, yeah, like you said, I think he's alluding here to the curse of Genesis 3, 17 and 9 to 19, to show that right from the beginning, the fate of the earth and the fate of humanity are tied together. Right? That's that's why God created humans, uh, is one way to read Genesis 1 and 2, is so that we could take care of the earth uh, as God's stewards. But of course, we chose not to do that. We uh, messed it all up. And now creation is suffering because of it. But the flip side of that is that, so if God is going to deal with our sin and our the problem of our sin, that's going to have a bigger scope and and uh, lead to more restoration of, of the whole creation. Uh, I think of the song Joy to the World, right? The, I think it's the third verse, so it doesn't usually get sung because we like to skip third verses, first, second, and fourth. Um, it says, no more let sin and sorrow go or thorns infest the ground. Um, and shoot, I should have written this down. What's the next line? Uh, he comes to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. Right? It's it's that curse that in Genesis three that, that song is referring to. Um, right? The the thorns of the earth are, are part of this outgrowing of of sin in some sense. And so, what God has done through Christ is this grand creation wide scope. And but at the same time, it's not simply that we're going to just go back to how things were in the Garden of Eden. Uh, there's a sense of human progression is good, right? God gave us the earth so that we could grow it and make it fruitful and multiply. And so that's what you see when you go to Revelation is it's a garden, but it's also a city, right? So we're not, we're not trying to go back. We're trying to, to go forward to be what God has created it to be in the first place, both for us and for creation. So this, again, he uses the idea of creation freed from slavery to decay. That's resurrection language, and it's also exodus language, right? As I've said before, the exodus story is kind of the, the foundational story of salvation, right? That it's freedom from slavery. And so, right, when he says that creation is groaning under, under this, this pain of slavery, it's like the groaning of the Israelites in Egypt, and they also uses this metaphor of creation groaning in childbirth, which I'm not one to, to speak to that. I've been there, but I haven't been through it. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, what he's getting at there is this idea, like we said earlier, that the new creation is being born from the old, right? that it's connected to it, uh, and yet it is different. Right? Again, to use Paul's metaphor in 1 Corinthians 15, it's like a seed and a plant. Right? So uh, labor is not an easy process, but that's how new things come to be. Right? Um, so creation is in childbirth right now, and so we're experiencing those, those birth pains. All right, well, I want to think a little bit about the implications of this. Right? Because again, uh, one of the common stories, and you know, whether it's the common story in, in our churches, is um, thankfully it doesn't seem to be quite as much as some others. Uh, but one of the common stories is all about how God is going to destroy the earth someday, and so we've got to get out of here. Uh, we've got to save our souls so God can take them to heaven uh, in the rapture, and then God's just going to be done with the late great planet earth, to quote the title of one terrible book. Um, and when you have that model in mind, 
what does that do about what kind of relationship are you going to have with the earth? You think it's all going to be destroyed one day. Why does this matter? Why should I care about creation or climate change or any of these problems? I just need to make sure I get out of here. Uh, and I was at, uh, unfortunately, I had to go to an end time seminar once because a church member got interested in it. And that was something that this guy argued. Uh, I mean, there were so many things that were wrong in his talk, but he was talking about revelation and taking things way too literally. And so he just kind of joked about like, oh yeah, since the water's going to turn to blood, why should we care about if it's polluted now, right? Um, there are real world uh, outcomes and implications of this bad theology. And we're seeing, I think, effects of it. And so... This view shows that God doesn't just care about us. God cares about everything God created. Right? Yes, we have a special place in creation, it seems. But that doesn't mean we're the only thing that God cares about. Yeah, what happens when you give somebody responsibility and then they do terrible things with it? They don't live up to it. Right? That's part of what you would be judged for. Um, and so I think to use this image of from Romans 8, we're called to continue reversing the curse. Right? In, in that curse in Genesis 3, it, you see it disrupts the relationships between humans, right? The, between men and women. And so we know that that's something we're supposed to work against and supposed to have the harmony that was there in the beginning. And so in the same way, we should do what we can to have more harmony with the earth that God has given us, um, restoring it where it's possible, right? Now, again, in, in one sense, this is the tension with all this, is that you can go too far and think, well, it's all on us. We've got to fix all these problems. And, and you kind of burn yourself out or rely only on your own strength. But I think the danger that I see more often for Christians is to think, well, God will deal with that someday. I can do what I want till, till he comes back. Right? So this idea that we're building towards what God is going to do and working in harmony with God through the power of the Spirit, who, as he says, is in us. All right, and Second Peter is arguing against people uh, who want a, an excuse to live how they want, which I think would include using the earth how they want. Um, and so he says there in Second Peter that the knowledge that we have of what God is going to do should affect how we live right now on this earth and in these bodies. Um, and God cares about it, right? In Revelation, there's a, a verse in Revelation 8, 11, 18, uh, he's talking about the time coming for judging the dead and rewarding the servants and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So this is, this is something that uh, God is paying attention to. Right? If God made it, um, we can't take it lightly. And I think we need to pay attention to what people are saying about what is happening and do what we can uh, to ensure that, since we don't know when Jesus is coming back, um, ensure that future generations have uh, an earth to live on. All right. All right. Well, let's look at a couple other passages. We won't spend much time in these, but again, I'm, I'm just trying to show that this idea of God restoring all things or recreating things, the new heavens and the new earth, new earth is not some random few verses I'm taking out of context, but this is the consistent story. Uh, so let's look at Colossians chapter one, Colossians one, 19 and 20. Uh, this is one of these, uh, people call them sometimes the, the Christ hymns. Uh, where it's looking at uh, Jesus and uh, Christ and, and all that he is and all that God has done through him. But again, as we read this, 
have this other picture in mind of, of God restoring things, right? Colossians 1, 19 and 20. Um, For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him, God was pleased to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of His cross. And also Ephesians 1.10, similar idea. Ephesians 1.10. There He says, uh, let's see, these are all, it's like this one huge long sentence, so it's always like you're jumping in the middle of it. Um, so I'll go back to verse 9. He's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Right? Sometimes people refer to this as the cosmic Christ. Right? That, that Christ is bringing all things, heaven and earth, together in him all things are reconciled to me that doesn't sound like it's talking about just some human souls uh, but redemption is as wide as creation right because it's so big right the again to me why this seems more believable is it's a better story right that god is working in this bigger picture instead of this frankly small picture that so many people have been handed uh, and so if, if it's saying that God can do more than what we think, I think that sounds more like God to me. And that, we won't need to look at it again, but in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, when he talks about God being all in all, I think that is also consistent with this, this vision here. Uh, then one last verse uh, is in Acts 3, 21. Uh, that's, I just mentioned this because that's where Peter is preaching a sermon. And he uses the phrase, the restoration of all things. Right, uh, and he had earlier in Acts it had talked about restoring the kingdom of Israel, and so here it seems like no, it's 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 bigger than that, right? It's the res- restoration of all things, um, not just all people, um, but but all things, right? What God has done through Christ is bigger than just me, thank God, right? It's it's everything that has gone wrong in God's creation, God is going to somehow make right. Next time we'll look at a couple of passages that uh, seem to be more about the go to heaven when you die and see how I think those still do fit into this, this same story. So if you've had some, what about John 14 in your mind? Uh, we're going to get there. <laughs>